I've been reading a fair bit in the past year. I've actually been getting right into some old Clancy novels, Tom Clancy, you know, Jack Ryan, the history professor turned CIA spy, turned president of the USA, dad of two kids and husband of a world famous eye surgeon, you know the one. When I read The Sum of All Fears or Clear and Present Danger, I started at the start and I ended at the end. I didn't skip bits, I didn't jump back and forth between chapters. The story is chronological, so one part always leads to the next. And the whole book is a fictional narrative, a story. And I'd find myself imagining I was actually in the story myself. If there were something I didn't quite understand, I could just keep reading and it would probably make sense in the end. Any of us who read novels know what I'm talking about, right? We're in the middle of this series called Summer Reading and we're covering a range of topics with the aim of encouraging us all to read our Bibles more often and more effectively. We don't want to just tell everyone that they should read their Bibles more. We want to provide tools, better information and personal inspiration that will help each of us to make the most of this incredible life-giving resource. Whether you've read it before, whether you've never read it before, or whether you read it every single day of your life. Here's what I think the biggest mistake is that we make when we read the Bible. Most of us don't ask enough questions. Most of us just read our reading for the day and, and leave it at that. And when we do ask questions, we don't ask the right ones. So today, I simply want to share the five questions I think we should all ask when we sit down and open our Bibles. And hopefully these help us all to rediscover a freshness and a depth to our reading of Scripture. The first question to ask is actually more like a request, and it comes before you even open your Bible or the app, if that's what you use. And it's this. It's a question to God in prayer. It says, God, please open the eyes of my heart right now to what you want to say to me through your word today. You know, Paul in Ephesians says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And praying this simple prayer before we open God's word is just so important. It, it sets the tone for what we're about to do. And sometimes that's all we need. We, we read a verse like Psalm 119, verse 143, where it says, As pressure and stress bear down on me, I find joy in your commands. And that's exactly what we needed that day to encourage us and to give us the strength we need to face our challenges. You know, just a simple reminder of God's goodness, His presence and joy in our lives. Sometimes, though, we read the Bible and rather than a verse standing out to us as a direct encouragement for our life then and there, maybe nothing stands out. Well, rather than putting it down and forgetting about it, here's the moment we should ask more questions. Questions such as this. What genre am I reading? You know, un unlike my Clancy novel, <laughs> the Bible is not just one book. It's a library of books. Many of us know this, but not many of us treat it like this. Many of us realize that the Bible is made up of multiple styles of writing. There's poetry, like in the Psalms and in Song of Songs. There's 
storytelling or what we call narrative, like the stories that are included in Genesis and Exodus and um, the book of Daniel, for instance. There are letters to people and to groups of people in the New Testament. There is prophetic writing full of graphic images and symbolism, like when Ezekiel talks about an army forming from a valley full of dry bones, or when Isaiah speaks of seraphim with six wings placing hot coals on his lips. There are lists for reference, like genealogies in Genesis and Matthew, and even census data in the books of Numbers and Samuel. There are accounts of real-life historical events, like the gospel stories of Jesus, and there are even parables, fictional stories, in these same Gospels. In fact, even individual books of the Bible can contain multiple genres of writing, switch between poetry and narrative in the book of Genesis, for example, or narrative and the prophetic in the book of Daniel, for example. So why is understanding genre important to reading the Bible? Well, put simply, We just don't read different genres the same way, do we? There's no way that I read a Clancy novel with the same perspective as I do the biography of Mark Webber, the famous Australian Formula One driver, or the Lonely Planet Guide to Chicago, or the leadership writings of Jim Collins. I treat them differently because they're different genres of writing. You know, there's... No note on the cover of my Clancy novel saying, this is all pretend, don't take this seriously. No single person could possibly be a world-leading history professor, a CIA super spy, president of the United States, dad to two kids, perfect husband or world-renowned eye surgeon and save the world several times in one lifetime. It doesn't need a note on the front of that saying this because I already know that it's a work of fiction and I read it with that in mind already. Likewise, when I I read the writings of Collins, there's no line on the front to say, you know, this book is meant to be used to teach you some new things about leading other people and organisations and should not be treated the same way as you would read Shakespeare or the poetry of Banjo Patterson. We can get very confused and sometimes dangerously so when we read the different genres of the Bible all the same way. You know, a passage in 1 Samuel describes King Saul as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. And this describes a key character in that story. And there's another description of somebody in the Old Testament, though, describing a woman. And this goes, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Now, one of these is narrative. And the other is poetry. Can you tell which one's which? (laughs) Of course you can. But you can see how things could be confusing if we treated them the same way. Now, this is a pretty silly example, of course, but you get my point. Let's look at another example. In Exodus 20, it says, you shall not murder. Now, this is a biblical instruction, isn't it? But there's another biblical instruction in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says, Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as shaving her head. 
Should we treat these two biblical instructions in the same way? If so, why don't we insist all the women attending our church wear something over their heads? Or why don't we make all of our young men cut off their mullets on the way in? Or the, or the old men take off their toupees? <laughs> if we follow one but not the other, aren't we just picking and choosing what we like and what we don't like? Shouldn't the whole Bible be taken literally? Well, it's completely appropriate to treat them differently because they are classified as different genres. One of these is a command written as a transcription of God's law to his people, the blueprints for how to be a community that reflects God to the people around them. And the other is a recommendation in a letter by a church leader to a specific church in a specific place and time for a specific purpose. Which brings us to the third question we should ask to understand our Bibles at a deeper level. And that's this. Who was it written by and who was it written for? Clancy was an American writer. He spoke English and only passed away in 2013. So when he writes about submarines or computers or Boeing jumbo jets, I know what he's talking about without having to ask any more questions. You put the same book in front of someone in the year 2122, and they may have a few questions about what on earth a jumbo jet is and And that's if they even speak English. (laughs) Likewise, if I were to write a book now about someone's experience through the COVID-19 pandemic and send it back in time for Clancy to read in 2010, he's going to have quite a few questions, isn't he? The same goes for our reading of the Bible. Because the Bible speaks to us, too often we slip into the mindset that the Bible was written to us. We think that the Bible was written by somebody just like us, with the same worldview and the same experiences of life, but this simply isn't accurate. And once again, if we get this confused, like we quite often do, we can completely miss the point of what the Bible is trying to say to us. Unless you or I were actually there at the time of writing and speak the same language, simply reading the words straight off the page without asking any more questions is not really enough, is it? We all know that the Bible was written by people a long, long time ago. We all know that it wasn't originally written in English and that it wasn't even written with us in mind. We know these things and yet it's almost like as soon as we sit down with our Bibles, we forget it straight away and we just read the Bible like any other book. We read the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts considered to be part one and part two of the same book. And we're reading one man, Luke's collection of first-hand accounts of Jesus' life and the first years of the church sent to another man, Theophilus, a very trustworthy source of historical information that can be cross-checked with other historical writings from the same time for accuracy. When we read poetry and song, we can peer into the emotions of the artists and it helps give us permission and language to express our emotions to God. When we read the dramatic imagery and the symbolism of the prophets and apocalyptic writings, this is, it is vital that we ask questions about what these symbols meant to the writers and the listeners at the time. Otherwise, a lot of it is nonsense to us and we can read into it new meanings that it was never meant to have. 
when we read Paul's letters in the New Testament, we've essentially opened up someone else's mail. Uh, Of course, we can still learn a heap from somebody else's mail, but in order to determine how we use what's there, we need to ask more questions. Questions like question four, what, what is its place within the broader story? You know, sometimes the best context we need for something is in the Bible is just to read the chapters around it and even consider the larger narrative of the Bible as a whole. There's a, a weird story in the book of Judges chapter three. And just a warning for young ears, there's some weird and disturbing details in this story, but bear with me, it's necessary. The passage explains that the people of Israel had sinned and turned away from God again and were suffering because of it. A neighboring king who was very fat had taken over and wasn't treating them well for 18 years. And the people cried out to God for help and he sent them a left-handed guy called Ehud. Ehud made a sword, strapped it to his right thigh under his clothing and went to present the king with a gift. After presenting the gift, Ehud told the king that he had a secret message to tell him so that the king's minders would leave them in private. When they had gone, Ehud proceeded to take the sword out from behind his right thigh with his left hand and shove it all the way in to the king's belly, whose fat rolls proceeded to cover right over it and make a huge mess and Ehud just left. The king's attendants actually thought that he must have been taken ages on the toilet, would you believe? But eventually they went in to check on him and of course he was long dead. The evil king had been defeated, the people of Israel saved and Ehud was the left-handed hero. Why all the weird detail? (laughs) What's the meaning of this? Well, like today, people at the time were mostly right-handed. Most soldiers who were right-handed would have kept their sword on their left thigh. So entering the king's presence, Ehud would have been checked for weapons with the presumption that he was a right-handed person, allowing him to hide his weapon and still get in to see the king. Encouragement for all the left-handers out there. Hey, you may be weird, but God can still use you. No, really. Sometimes we feel like our differences from those around us is is a bad thing. But what if the very thing that makes us different is the thing that God wants to use? And if this was the main message that you got from reading the story, then that's awesome. What an encouragement. But there's actually more. You see, when we zoom out a little bit and look at the chapters around this one, we see that there's a pattern going on. Israel sins, they have to live with the consequences of their sin. Then they eventually cry out to God who sends them a saviour, who violently corrects things only for Israel to sin again and then it all starts over. What does this tell us? Perhaps that violence really doesn't solve much in the end? Perhaps that violence often just leads to more violence? Maybe that revenge feels good at the time but often doesn't truly satisfy? And if we zoom out even further and look at the overall story of the Bible, it makes more sense now, doesn't it? That while the Jewish people of Jesus' day were expecting another Messiah who would overthrow the Romans with power and might and even violence, 
Jesus was the Savior sent by God for eternal life, everlasting life, not just a temporary fix like Ehud and all the others. So he had to be a different kind of Savior. Can you see how a story that is kind of really weird at first glance can actually have significant lessons for us if we ask more questions? All right, kids, you can open up your ears now. The final question we need to ask is this. What is God saying through his word to me? What is God's Holy Spirit revealing to me about himself through what I've read? What makes sense when combined with what I already know about God? What doesn't sit right? What further questions are raised for me? What's one way I can put into practice what I've learned about becoming more like Jesus? Here's a message in the book of James for each of us. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in the mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. Unlike my Clancy novel, the Bible can't just be put read and then put down and forgotten again. If our reading of the Bible doesn't lead to real action and change in our lives, then I don't think we're really reading it properly. <laughs> And we certainly haven't asked enough questions. Remember, those of us who are Christians consider this to be the Word of God, living and active. It even describes itself as sharper than a double-edged sword, or a seed that will never die, or milk to nourish, or a lamp that lights the way, a fire that consumes and a hammer that shatters rock. How could this incredible, life-changing library of ancient writings not do something to move us and change our lives for the good every time we open it? If we don't ask enough questions or enough of the right questions, it becomes just another book. It becomes just something that we read because we feel like we should. It becomes like a mirror that we look into and then forget what it reveals the very moment we look away. I wonder, have you asked enough questions of your Bible lately? The reality is that you and I are used to reading books cover to cover. We're used to reading books that are written by a single author or a team of authors who have worked together on them. We're used to reading books that were written within a single window of time. We're used to reading books that don't change genre <laughs> as you read them. Most of us are even used to reading books that were written in our own language originally. So it's only natural that we read the Bible through this lens by default. Do we all have responsibility to learn ancient Greek and Hebrew and become super smart scholars of biblical history? No, some people do, but that's not God's plan for everyone. We all do have a responsibility though, to ask more of the right questions when we read the Bible and then 
rely on the Holy Spirit and wise and knowledgeable, godly people around us to reveal new things to us. A responsibility to read the Bible with an attitude of hunger and curiosity because we want to learn more about how to live godly lives and not just read it like it's any other book. Because this ain't no ordinary book. Here's my hope and prayer for us as we wrap up today. May we all get excited about digging into the Word of God once again this year. May we all continue to ask questions. May we all start to ask the right questions. And may we all continue this journey together as a community of hearing God's whispers to each of us through His Word and through His Holy Spirit.